Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of the 40U podcast Corona Ethics, where we discuss the ethical challenges of societal responses to COVID-19. In this series, we ask philosophers of technology from the 40U Ethics Department to help us reflect on how the pandemic challenges social practices and institutions. In this episode, Buster Bohr interviews Mika Boone about how science can make sense of the corona pandemic and how philosophy of science can help us understanding what science can and cannot do. Mika Boone is a full professor of philosophy of science in practice in the philosophy department at the University of Twente. Bas de Boer is a postdoctoral researcher within the 40U Pride and Prejudice Project, where he researches how technologies shape our understanding and experience of health. Hi and welcome to the 40U Ethics and Corona podcast. Today I'm here with Mika Bone. Uh, Mika, uh, I want to thank you very much for, uh, for being here. Thank you, uh, Bas. Let me briefly introduce, introduce Mika to you. Mika is a professor at the philosophy department at the University of, uh, of Twente, chair in uh, philosophy of science in, uh, in practice. She has a really interesting background that's, I think, very relevant for current discussions in the context of the coronavirus. Uh, she obtained a master's degree in chemical engineering at the University of Twente, and uh, later on she received a PhD in biotechnology at the Technical University of Delft. However, at the same time, she has been very interested in, uh, in philosophy, which she, uh, she studied at Leiden University, eventually leading up to, let's say, a professorship at the philosophy department. So in 2006, she initiated the Society for Philosophy of Science and Practice, which she was a board member until 2016. Uh, since 2015, she's the chair of the section Theoretical Philosophy of the National Dutch Research School in Philosophy. And as of recently, she is also appointed as a dean of the Atlas University College at the University of Twente. So it's great to uh, have Mika here as a guest to, uh, let's say, discuss the intersection of ethical and epistemological aspects in the context of the coronavirus, which can, I think, can be very uniquely addressed from, uh, let's say, the perspective of philosophy of science in practice. Mika, what I'd like to start with is just with a somewhat broad question about we see a lot of debates going on now, but there are also, let's say, some things that aren't addressed. So what I'm interested in here, which aspects of the coronavirus do you miss mostly in current discussions about the pandemic? And maybe what kind of, let's say, unique perspective does your philosophy of science in practice uh, philosophy have in addressing, let's say, new issues? I think that is the trust that people have, or there is, um, yeah, people who have trust in scientific outcomes and uh, people who have this uh, the, the trust in the scientific outcomes. And I think that it is important about, uh, yeah, why that is, or why people have trust, or why they distrust uh, sciences. And uh, this has to do a lot. Uh, this has to do a lot with um, the pictures of science that people have. Um, so what they believe that science can do or not do. And what we see there is often a kind of um, dichotomy that people may feel they have to either um, the sciences give 
absolute truth about things that we want to know or, or to predict. And then the more skeptics with a huge distrust um, and say that it is all connected to values and to interests that people have. There's hardly anything in between. And I think these are quite still quite dominant um, ideas, a, a quite dominant dichotomy also in the in, in the way that, that people approach uh, contro- controversies, that the controversies there are, are often framed as believers or non-believers in scientific outcomes. And so I think that for an after-corona topic, it would be very important for societal interest to, um, yeah, to work uh, on a better understanding of what science can do and what science cannot do so that we can have more nuanced uh, discussions about these really difficult questions. So, yeah, th- thank you. Thank you, Mika. So mainly, if I understand you correctly, what you say is that the dichotomy between, let's say, an image in which science is uh, only have, has a vested political and uh, interest, and let's say whether where it is uh, only a neutral enterprise, must be uh, broken through, and that's something that that uh, let's say a question of philosophy of science in this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think maybe it's interesting to start with thinking about what science actually does when speaking about the uh, the coronavirus. So in a sense, it's, it is invisible, of course, in our daily lives mostly, right? So yes, yeah. if we have another disaster or catastrophe like an earthquake, it's immediately visible that that's something, something bad is going on. It seems to be absent in the current situation. So can you elaborate maybe a bit on how science became able to speak about the coronavirus and its place in, let's say, our current world? Yes, um, so uh, what I found actually amazing to learn uh, when I followed uh, the the whole development of this crisis and also uh, I get a a daily report from Nature, for instance, where I see all the kinds of of, uh, uh, scientific research that is being done around uh, the corona crisis. It is amazing how many topics need to be investigated. So it is, um, and and how many things are unknown. So and and that is really, I think, uh, already something very important and interesting to know about uh, about science and scientific practices. That uh, at the moment of this outbreak, at the moment that the the coronavirus appeared. Um, there were. I was thinking myself, so I'm I'm kind of well educated. But I thought, well, it is a virus, and we know about spread, and we know about infection. But that is not at all true. So um, uh, researchers all over the world have started, from their own uh, perspective, doing uh, uh, research in all kinds of things. So uh, how the virus works, how immunity works, how spread works, how responses of people work, the clinical effects of, of the virus. And what happened in, in all this research is that new puzzles emerged all the time. So, for instance, if we have an expectation of how uh, a virus operates on the on the body. We don't know. The, the researchers didn't know. So, so it required the study of, of, of ill people. It, it required 
uh, investigation at the molecular level, at the cell level. Um, the, the, the same is true about immunity. We have this belief that uh, when people were infected or have been infected, we create um, well, our in, immune system creates antibodies. But uh, will uh, people stay immune? How, how long will they stay? Will they stay immune? This was unknown. So the researchers have expectations, but everything needs to be tested. Another aspect of it is um, that if we want to um, uh, make calculations on, on possible scenarios, for instance, we need data. And, and to get the data, we need to develop all kinds of measurement methods, which weren't there. I mean, there were, of course, uh, more general uh, measurement me uh, methods, but for this specific a virus and, and for what it does, new measurement methods uh, needed to be developed, for instance, to find biomarkers on the cell for this virus. All this research has not been, uh, being, is not being done because um, out of a kind of scientific interest, but, be, but because we need to know these things with the means that we have in order to to think in a scientifically informed way about what it is. Yes, another other aspect, for instance, is that what researchers really want to know is where did the virus come from? So there is this um, uh, this this idea that it comes from this uh, high shoe bed, but was it how did it get there? Is it in other uh, high sh um, uh, horseshoe horseshoe uh, beds, and it was found at some point that uh, the virus was there already much longer. It was found in uh, in frozen uh, horseshoe beds. So it's it's all these kinds of of questions that are important for in the end to inform um, uh, governments and and policymakers of of aspects that that play an important role in uh, deciding on the best kind of policy that you could take. Yeah, thanks, Mika. That's really interesting clarification. So I was thinking about, uh, let's say, when this idea that science uh, has to answer very, let's say, very multiple questions, each, let's say, with, with from all different specialized perspectives, and at the same time, also, let's say, it faces a lot of uncertainties that seems to have, let's say, counterintuitive consequences for what many people take science to be. I read an interview with Diedrich Krommers, the chair of the Society for Intensive Care, this uh, this morning. And, uh, and he said, well, what, what amazes me about policymaking is that they are so concerned with universal truth and remain to, let's say, defend a certain position all of the time. Whereas Homers, as a scientist, is is well, used to changing opinions all the time in light of our new scientific developments, so to say. So how Homers presents himself here seems to be quite different from, um, say, how the public understands uh, what's, what, what, science, what science is. So can you maybe... Tell a bit more on how you think that scientists in practice deal with this problem of uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. So the, I think this is well. This is the point that I, I started with uh, after your opening question, indeed. That 
uh, policy makers, uh, politicians indeed, um, uh, kind of stick to this idea that science can give us certainty. And that, uh, that whereas in scientific practices there are debates and, and um, uh, discussions all the time and not in a kind of... Um, um, uh, yes, in a kind of productive manner, right? So they come up with a hypothesis and say, well, we see this phenomenon and it could be explained by um, by such and such. For instance, there is this phenomenon that uh, I, I read about recently that children um, uh, don't get sick from, from even though uh, they are infected by the virus. And then uh, scientists start to discuss of how is that possible? And then uh, they, they start to come up with explanations that they can think of. They say, well, um, uh, children are young and so they have a kind of, um, uh, what is it, malleable uh, uh, immune systems. They easily produce antibodies. And so that is why they uh, don't get sick. And then, so that is a hypothesis. And then other scientists, but you don't know, it is a hypothesis based on what we know so far about the immune system. And then other, uh, other uh, scientists come up with alternative hypotheses. And so that is a very constructive debate where, where uh, scientists with different background knowledge, with different expertise, um, think about a proposed hypothesis, not to not to prove that they are right, but to think about it critically of whether it is plausible, whether it is a justified um, uh, hypothesis, and and maybe to set up uh, research and and uh, to to measure things. So these discussions are usually very open, and the, the scientists themselves are not at all certain about their hypothesis. They, those are ideas. Those ideas are well informed by their expertise and, and um, still in the laboratory. Been wondering why uh, politicians and policymakers find it so difficult to accept that uh, science cannot give any certainty. It doesn't give uh, uh, truth. But what it can be it can give at, at some point is the best what we have at that point. So supported by certain evidence and certain just justification. And scientists can very well um, uh, explain to what extent they trust what they say, but also where the uncertainties are. And I think that um, I'm also very much interested in science education. And I think that that uh, for uh, societal well-being, it is really crucial that um, that that I think that the Corona crisis actually shows that because this won't be the only crisis. That's what everybody, the only only pandemic pandemic that we will have. I mean, how we live and and our vulnerability. There will be more. And um, um, th th these crises should not lead to a kind of um, civil war about what is true and what is not true, but a better understanding of, of uh, our limitations. And so that has consequences for our education to, to educate people better of 
uh, why there is uncertainty and and wh- why research is needed anyway, right? That, and and uh, often there seems even to be I, I even see that with first and second year students that when we give them a problem, they have this belief that we go to the literature and we look for the answer to this problem. But for hardly any uh, concrete question, there is a concrete answer. Every problem requires new research because um, in the past, so this is about philosophy of science, in the past we believed that um, there were uh, general theories, and from these general theories, we could uh, derive or deduce answers to concrete questions. But our um, our experience with science and scientific uh, research is that it doesn't work that way. Every specific problem requires a specific answer where we make use of knowledge that we have, uh, measurement methods that we have, but uh, on top of that, always scientific research is needed. Scientific hypotheses are needed to, yeah, to, to figure out what's going on here. Thanks, Mika. So you would say that in a sense, scientific, scientific research is in a sense always provisional. Yes. Sort of the, the truth claims that it, uh, that it would like to make. What I'd like to ask you as well, also given your, let's say, your own expertise about the role of models in scientific research. So um, do you think that one way to educate citizens about the working of science would to also highlight the role of models and the importance of models to deal with uncertainty in scientific research? Definitely. I think that there lies a clue of, of how to do that. Um, so traditionally, um, uh, science has um, been presented as kind of facts, presenting facts or presenting laws, laws of nature, for instance, or the image of and theories, but theories consist of laws. So, um, so the traditional view is that we have uh, scientifically proven facts, we have scientifically proven uh, laws. Um, uh, well, first, uh, about the laws, uh, why doesn't that work so well? That is because um, uh, I think that that we should adopt a kind of, 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 uh, of, of what uh, scientific... Um, uh, we often, for instance, find correlations or causal relationships. But what we know from, and and the hopes was that those causal relationships that we find can uh, act as uh, scientific laws. For instance, about virus, right? We could have a a causal law about how behaves. For instance, a causal uh, uh, law that um, causes uh, immunity in the body. And so there are many uh, causal laws that we, well, tentatively have. But what appears in, um, in in the practice of science, in the practice of scientific research, and also, of course, in our ordinary life, is that, yes, we need such kinds of rules, these kinds of law-like um, rules, but 
um, they only hold in very, very specific circumstances. So uh, that is often in the philosophy of science called the Deceteris Paribus principle, that the, the law only holds if all conditions are uh, uh, kept equal. But the problem is that we, we do not know what the relevant conditions are for that law to hold. A lot of the scientific research is aimed at finding what are actually the, the physical conditions or the conditions for this law to be true. So a deeper principle in our whole scientific thinking and in the thinking of everybody, uh, I think, is, is a belief that if there are the same conditions, then also the same effects will happen, right? That is a kind of rule to all our thinking about the world. But, um, but this rule is very uh, profound in a sense. It is very deep because um, it, it, it sounds very simple, right? We, we, in our thinking about the world, how we act in the world, we believe that, and it's a very important, uh, met, say, metaphysical principle in how we do science, that at the same conditions, the same effects will happen, uh, for instance, with a virus. But the point is, what are the conditions, right? There are so many conditions possible, possibly relevant, and that is what we have to figure out in science. So that's about the laws, and that's also about the problematic character about laws and facts. So uh, we work this, this way, but, but this, this same condition, same effect principle is, is what it makes extremely complex, is what causes that so much research, additional research is needed to figure out whether a law holds here or not. Um, so, and then about models. Uh, we use, by the way, uh, lots of these kinds of laws in the building of our models. So that already makes it complicated. But why, why do we need models? Um, so just very briefly, there are different ideas about what models are. And there are many, many different kinds of models in science. So I think it is important to, to uh, at least distinguish two kinds of models. The one is mathematical models, so they are quantitative. And they are crucial in uh, for using in such a crisis as this one and in all kinds of other uh, application contexts to make calculations. So we need models, for instance, to calculate. Um, uh, uh, so, for instance, now we see that uh, yesterday uh, 8,000 people were tested positive. Uh, today are uh, 9,000 and tomorrow are 10,000. I think that I'm at uh, a day behind, but these were the figures. So then you can make a calculation of how fast the spread will go. And so that uh, these kinds of calculations are made by means of, of models. They are mathematical models and, and they are put into computer models and then they are called simulation models. Uh, yeah, that is actually the third. So the, the mathematical model is the basis for building a simulation model. And what a simulation model does, so that is built into the computer, is that you can uh, see the development of a certain uh, event like the spread uh, over time. 
And you can also, depending on what the model is like, see what the effects of certain interventions could be. So for instance, if the model has built into it um, the, the number of contacts that, that a person has every day with different people, and um, you have numbers of how many people are infected, for instance, um, then you can make calculations about the spreads. Therefore, you need the number of people that are infected. You need, you need knowledge about how likely it is that another person is infected when they are at one and a half meters from you. Right. So all these, these um, uh, empirical findings so far can be built in, into such first the mathematical model and then the simulation model. And for instance, if then the, the government thinks, okay, we are going to close the shops, so that's an intervention that you do that of which about which you could uh, calculate what the effect could be on the spread of the virus. So then you say, okay, then we reduce so many um, so many contacts with new people, and the chances of that spread in a shop, for instance, is such and such. And then you can make an estimation of uh, yeah how how that will help to uh, get uh, to reduce the speed of the spread and um, to continue on your question of are models important so these models are very important so these mathematical models are very important to um, to to make such calculations about the effects of um, of interventions. You need to be quantitative about it because if you take an intervention that has hardly any effects and has a lot of negative effects, then of course you, you better not do it. So you need to quantify that. Another aspect of models is actually the model that, that goes before that. And that is uh, what, what you could call a causal mechanistic model, or I tend to call it a conceptual model. And that is the kinds of models that we could also share with, uh, with the public as scientists. I think that scientists have a role to play there. That is where you start the model. So um, this is also what I do a lot with students, that um, uh, to get away from this picture that our knowledge about the world is derived deductively from abstract theories, um, I try to convince and teach students that scientific thinking starts with modeling and it starts at our ordinary uh, level of understanding. So as you and I can think about uh, spread of a virus, right? We have a notion, a concept of infection. Uh, we have a notion of how infection works. So what we do in conceptual modeling is that we try to, to develop a story, a kind of conception of, okay, how does actually spread of the virus work? Um, so uh, it, it goes by uh, skin contact, for instance. Uh, viruses need the fluid to, uh, well, not all of them, but assume we know that, uh, need fluids to spread. So it is in droplets. Um, when there is, uh, when people meet a lot, then uh, they can spread a lot. And so we can slowly and, and in a kind of systematic uh, manner build a picture of how spread works. 
And um, uh, in, in that picture, at some point, we start to ask questions. And, and that is how the model develops, our picture develops. We start to ask questions, okay, how likely is it that uh, it will spread in such and such a way? And then we start to go to the scientific literature or to scientific research. So we start to inform our model by scientific knowledge. So the, the message there is also to the general audience and to the, to the general public that models can be understood. The building of models and how we craft models can, uh, can in essence, in how they are built, uh, be understood. And what is important there to understand is that we, in the modeling, make all kinds of assumptions about things that we do not know uh, yet. So by um, sharing the story of, or, or, or by, by sharing um, how we build the models, what the uncertainties are, what the things are that we do not yet know, what the open questions are. If we could communicate this better, then people would understand better that indeed there is no certainty, but there is still a lot that can be understood in what we did do. There's still a lot uh, that can uh, explain the rationale of uh, why we approach it in this way. And so my yeah I, my ideal uh, in this respect would be that the whole process of modeling uh, would be uh, would be shared much more would be much more transparent both to the politicians and both also to the general audience to show okay this is how it works and then it is very natural that that there is no that the, that the model outcome say is not an absolute truth. I think you 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 really touch upon some really really important things here. So what I what I what I understand from from what you're saying in the last part, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that there also is an important continuity between let's say everyday reasoning and scientific reasoning, exactly. such, yes. such that also uh, scientific reasoning can be can be understood from let's say more or less lay uh, between brackets perspective. Exactly, and, and, and that is crucial, I think, for the trust into in science, right? That uh, now it is often uh, it, it, it is often suggested that um, okay, the RIVM has calculated this, but then the audience wants to know, but how? And is it political what it did? And and oh, I'm sure that there are all kinds of of, of values and interests built into that, right? So so engage people in and 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 show to them um, uh, how it is done and and I understand that it is not easy to do that but but I mean that is a task that is a task by scientists but also the or actually it it, it is a choice it is even a, a moral choice that that a, a government can do that you say well we want to have a better, uh, a, a better understanding by the of, well let's start here we know now that distrust is often caused by these kinds of arguments right that it is black boxed for mm -hmm. instance or people feel that it is black boxed so if we know that if we know that that it is black that that this is one of the causes of distrust i mean there's many causes of course if we know that then we should not um, do kind of commerce or so or or um, 
uh, hire uh, um, advertisements uh, and communication people to to improve that to well make people more easily believe believe what we do, but instead of that. Uh, engage people and and uh, help them better understand. And that will cost an enormous effort. But I think it is not impossible. It is possible to do that. It is possible to also, on, at each level of, of education, it is possible to help people uh, uh, better understand of how these things work. And I think in this corona, or due to this corona crisis, there is, an, is a fantastic chance because we can now become uh, convinced how important it is that people better understand the role of scientific research in, well, everything that, that is threatening us. And so I'm sometimes also wondering about education. I, I, I love science. You must know I, I love science, but, but I'm wondering really, why do we teach students Newtonian mechanics at high school? And not these kinds of things, right? Where where you where you uh, where you would work towards a kind of literacy, scientific literacy, where uh, people can understand at a basic level how these how the scientific research works and how we can go about in in yeah the best possible way we have at this point. So now we're moving a bit also to the topic of how science and science communication uh, works in this in this context. So at the same time, while we see that indeed people might or might not be scientifically literate, they seem to act nowadays as being scientifically literate. So it's yes. said, for example, that Dutch society momentarily consists of say, 70 million virologists. Yeah. <laughs> Or something, or something like that. Uh, so, what I find interesting in what you tell here about about models is uh, also whether this story of science can backfire as well. So, <laughs> if you, for example, present scientific research as as quite value laden, and that also these values might inform the models, whether that not in turn would, let's say, also convince groups that that science is indeed not to be trusted. Okay, so um, uh, yeah, I think you you raise uh, several several quite uh, interesting uh, things. First of all, I think it is fantastic if there are seventy million um, virologists in an, in the in the Netherlands, really, because it means that people want to think about a topic. They want to form their own opinion. They want to uh, understand what's going on. They want to understand how uh, how things work. Uh, and the problem is that um, uh, that we have to do. It is and and but and but we have a problem that we are talking about a very complex system. And so uh, there are no easy laws. That is why I started to talk about laws, right? The, the, the nice thing about laws was that they seem to be easy. And, but laws are not easy. It is much more complex. Uh, uh, systems behave often very different than we would expect based on our simple laws that we think we can use to make inferences, to draw conclusions. Um, so I think that uh, when when uh, seeing that there are 70 million um, viro uh, virologists in the Netherlands is the best possible starting point 
to, um, to start working on, on models, on introducing models, in, on introducing uh, to, uh, to show people how these models work. And an important uh, thing that I would like to... Um, um, so, so, so the task is then uh, to um, help people develop a better and deeper understanding. So now they have hardly any information for their thinking. Uh, they have hardly any knowledge for, for independently thinking and drawing inferences. And very often, this is what you see in, 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 in uh, newspapers, in when people talk in their chats, you see them draw simplistic inferences all the time and believe that that is true. Because that is, of course, how we think, right? And that's not wrong. It is fantastic that people do that and that they try it. But we don't offer them enough to take it a step further. And that is where uh, there lies a task uh, for scientists and also for the government to support that. And so what I could imagine here is that uh, so, so as I said, um, systems are much more complex uh, than we would think um, based on uh, the, the, the kind of laws we can still understand, the kind of causal uh, relationships that we can still understand. And, um, and, and where people, if you, if you um, take a, uh, if policy does something that does not agree what they believe based on their laws, on their simple thinking, uh, then they get angry. Then they feel that, that something strange is go going on here, right? Which is completely reasonable in a sense. So I think that that is one of the, of the, of the things to keep in mind uh, of what you can do against distrust, not to tell people that they are wrong, but to tell people, okay, let us explain in a more advanced way of how this, this is going. And with, with current techniques, we can perfectly do that by webinars and by film and so on and so forth. For instance, um, I remember the first time that I made a simulation model and that was in the second year of my studies in chemical engineering. And it was a simulation model of how a sewage plant uh, develops, how the bacteria in it grow, how the, how the um, what is it, the removal of pollution uh, uh, worked in, in, in what came from the sewage plant. And I still remember the feeling when I saw for the first time that whole simulation of the development of all the components in that plant over time. And, and I thought, wow, this is fantastic because I could never ever have thought intuitively based on what I know about bacteria, about um, uh, what they do and so on and so forth, that the, that the dynamics of the system works like that. And so I would like to give other people such an experience with modeling of complex system to show that what happens is often completely counterintuitive, doesn't agree with what you expect. So if you expect that a certain intervention will work or will not work, and you can show to people, well, look at this simulation, what happens if we do this or what, when we do that? 
um, then we we uh, then they can develop a kind of understanding. Oh, well, now I can kind of sense why a uh, certain policy is, uh, is is taken. And another part of it is that people often feel, okay, yes, but this and this and this is not taken into account. Well, show it. Show what happens if you take it into account or show that it is being taken into account, right? So I think a lot can made, be made uh, transparent. That is one, that's my first part of the, uh, the, the, my answer. My second part is a very critical uh, uh, part towards uh, ethicists uh, and philosophers. And that is the term value-laden. Don't use that. Don't use that anymore because it, it gives a completely wrong idea about what's going on here. It, it, it gives the impression that it is just by gut feeling or by preferences that um, in such modeling um, choices are made. But that's not the case. I mean, a lot of choices are made um, on things that can be uh, uh, about which the choices can be made explicit. There is a lot of experts uh, background knowledge, and we may be wrong, but being wrong is not the same as being value-laden. So I think that the term value-ladenness in, in science has done a lot of harm to the trust in science and is very easily used by skeptics. That, that, that's a interesting criticism indeed at least the uh, the, the latter the latter part of your uh, of your of your answer can you maybe maybe propose let's say a term that more adequately captures the the choices that 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 scientists might make when when modeling yeah yeah and so i think that the notion of value ladenness plays uh, into the cards i don't know whether that's an english expression but plays into the card of the relativist and skeptics skeptics right so you say well it is value laden and uh, we started this discussion saying well uh, science cannot give uh, truths but it is the best uh, that we have and um, so a lot of our for for a lot of our knowledge um, just the best possible justification is is given it, it i i uh, i was just thinking of this book by um, uh, by uh, naomi oreskes uh, and that has this title um, well she get, she gives these similar arguments as i do of um, why actually, uh, yeah, the title of that book is Why Trust Science. So she gives similar arguments. It is not because I have truths, right? But because the kind of dynamics of hypothesizing, criticizing hypothesis, coming up with alternative evidence, and that the whole kind of uh, process in scientific uh, practices uh, where where uh, scientists challenge one another, why they where they uh, bring in all the complexity of a problem, whereas one scientist often looks at it too uh, uh, too um, uh, idealistic or too reducing, not taking in, into account many important factors. But and and her argument is well, due to this these dynamics of the scientific practices, we uh, should trust science more than uh, is currently done. And so you ask for, for an 
for another tomb, I would say, well, it requires the understanding of these dynamics of how uh, how scientists work, and that it is also very human. You you asked this question, or, or you you made this remark that uh, that science is is much closer to a normal human reasoning than we often tend to to say. And and indeed, one of the things that I find very important also in my philosophical work and in my teaching is to demystify science, right? to get away from this idea that we that we talk in terms of, of, of high level, very abstractive, uh, incomprehensible, um, unintelligible theories. No, we start at a very normal empirical level, and of course we have expertise, but the whole debate also of, of scientists is very human. It is a human way of, of, of reasoning where we may stick a little bit better to certain um, rules of how a good argument works, right? How it's how it is logic, but it is it is human. And so to to get to get a feel an appreciation of of this ability of humans of human reasoning and that it is going on all the time in the scientific practices uh, would be a way to get away from this kind of uh, too dominant idea of the of of the value ladenness of of uh, science. Mika, thank you, thank you very much. I I would like to address two themes that related to two let's say questions that was related to what we have been discussing thus far. So what I understand is that on the on the one hand it is really needed to give a more realistic picture of science also in the. Uh, uh, context of the corona crisis to help the uh, let's say the uh, the citizens to better understand what choices are made mm -hmm. um so the first issue that i would like to discuss here is that um well nowadays mostly everyone agrees that that interdisciplinarity is crucial in science generally but especially in uh in dealing in the, with the current uh, current pandemic but at the same time we know of course that science scientists might speak let's say different languages due to different uh, specialisms mm -hmm. which would, would make interdisciplinary research maybe somewhat challenging mm -hmm. at the same time it might exemplify exactly what you say uh say before that it might well be the case that the difference between let's say human reasoning and scientific reasoning is not that clear cut especially if you look at how these yes. <laughs> yes. So. Uh, yes that's true as soon as we st start to talk uh, uh, interdisciplinary we suddenly are normal uh, human right <laughs> we are not <laughs> and uh, yeah we have difficulties to understand the other uh, discipline in it how they think and and how they work um, in my philosophical work, uh, interdisciplinarity is, is uh, quite a big topic uh, that I have uh, studied from an epistemological uh, perspective. And I think one point where we should start is that it is often thought that interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary uh, collaborations are kind of uh, straightforward. And um, uh, very often, uh, well, it turns out that it doesn't work. And very 
often, sadly enough, it is um, it. This was explained by that people do not communicate well, for instance, or that they are in competition with each other, or these kinds of uh, psycholo- social psychological reasons were given uh, for the fact that interdisciplinarity uh, and interdisciplinary projects often do not uh, do not work very well and i think that is really sad that that um, uh, that it is framed that way or has often been framed it's also uh, infrastructural uh, boundaries should be removed but i think that that uh, from an epistemological point of view um, well, that is at least the result from my philosophical work, my philosophy of science and practice work, is that interdisciplinarity is extremely difficult for epistemological reasons. And the, and the reason for that goes back to, say, the, the kind of understanding that we already have learned from Kuhn's, so his idea of paradigms, that uh, each scientific discipline works in its own uh, disciplinary perspective. And and, uh, Kuhn would uh, take the word paradigm. In Kuhn's case, paradigms follow up on each other because he was mainly focused on physics. But um, in in, in the kind of uh, actual practice of, of science, all these scientific disciplines, which branch off even every day, I mean, every day, not every day maybe, but so many uh, new uh, disciplines, sub-disciplines are born all the time. Specializations are born. And um, these disciplines each have their own disciplinary perspective. So now the question is, what is a disciplinary perspective? Uh, because that sounds kind of very subjective, and it is not. It is something that can be explained also amongst scientific communities, I think. A a disciplinary perspective is what you are educated in when you become an expert. And within a scientific or within a scientific discipline, within a, a disciplinary perspective, uh, we learn, for instance, first of all, what the kind of chem- what the kind of uh, phenomena are that we are usually focused on in this discipline. So, a virologist is focused on on um, uh, on viruses, um, and uh, immunologist is is um, focused on. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce the word. I'm immunological uh, phenomena. (laughs) A clinician is focused on the clinical effects of corona, right? So each of them is focused on different kinds of phenomena. And these phenomena are worthy of study, of scientific investigation to begin with. And then each discipline has its own theories about, um, in molecular biology, for instance, about what that what that molecules are about, and in virology, what what kinds of viruses you have. And also each discipline has, and that is very important to also keep in mind, has its own measurement techniques. And measurement techniques are never a direct. Uh, window on the world. They are very indirect indirect in their information, in the information that they give us. And so um, when people from different disciplines aim to work together, it is, well, uh, uh, popularly said, they don't speak each other's language. 
but more kind of um, yeah advanced. We can say they don't know each other's uh, disciplinary perspective. But what is worse even is that that is not acknowledged. It is not often acknowledged. When I'm raised in a certain disciplinary perspective, I'm often not aware that, that I live in that, that I talk in terms of that. And so I expect others to easily understand that, and they don't. So part of the uh, uh, academic education, I think, should be um, after you have become acquainted with your own discipline that you're trained in, that you become an expert in, should also aim at how to, uh, first of all, why is it so difficult? And secondly, on learning how to communicate uh, amongst people. And I think that is doable. So you don't need to, to become an expert in another discipline before you can uh, talk together. You, you need to uh, have some basic knowledge and you need to learn some uh, well of the uh, key aspects of that uh, disciplinary perspective, which is doable, which would make this, um, this communication not so frustrating, not so um, threatening, because people find it threatening and that's also why they don't do it. Not, it, it would make uh, it would prevent that you feel it as a failure and it is very important for uh, societal well-being again that that this is developed so as I, if i understood you correctly there see there is a kind of parallel yes, between yes, interdisciplinary yeah, research and, yes. and science yes yes and that's a very nice point actually because also when we do science communication we often forget about this, the the disciplinary perspective within which we develop the knowledge and the outcomes so we should in the communication with the audience also be very aware how this background plays a role so also one of the goals for science from science communication then could be to to help uh, citizens entering your own disciplinary perspective. Yes, and the other way around, right? Also help scientists to to get this awareness and 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 how they communicate about that. For instance, I saw several examples uh, also of of science communication. How, for instance, graphs are are uh, presented. And what, what you often see in scientific uh, presentations is that the scientists forget what, what is on the axis of the graph, right? And, and how the data come up, came about, what, what was the measurement done here? Right? So they, they, they for often forget about very elementary things to help the other understand what you're doing. And that, is, that causes mystification and, as a, as a consequence, distrust. So what I'd uh, like to, to ask you in relation to what, what we just talked about was uh, especially the relations to the relation to the here and now. So now we have these discussions again about, about vaccinations and the, uh, and the, uh, for the coronavirus, where we indeed again encounter these uh, issues of trustworthiness and people that don't trust uh, the quality of the vaccines. And what you see in newspaper coverage is quite often that it is acknowledged that um, there is somewhat less time to evaluate the quality of viruses, of vaccines, I mean, 
and that, but that doesn't affect the quality of the uh, of the vaccines. But at the same time, you see that people are still wary about whether this is actually true. And I was wondering um, how your perspective on, uh, let's say, the interaction between scientists and society and the responsibility of science uh, scientists therein um, helps, let's say, articulating about what is exactly at stake here. Yeah, yes. Um, yes, that is a very difficult question. So, to be honest, um, I I wouldn't be a test person, <laughs> wouldn't like to be a test person here. I mean, uh, it is indeed something that is brought into your body and uh, where your whole organism can respond to. Um, and yes, so what what we all want is is that these vaccines are uh, tested, right? And um, and the the development of the the current vaccines is uh, has uh, uh, happened under huge um, time pressure and economic pressure also. Economic for the reason that our economy is harmed by this whole crisis and so on the other hand what is really interesting here is that there has been huge huge collaboration on in in the development of the vaccine and it is amazing how fast it has developed because when we started i think that there were numbers like that it takes five to seven years to to um, to, to get a vaccine and what the difficult thing uh, of, of developing a vaccine has to do with all the things I mentioned about, uh, about scientific research, that we cannot, from a kind of broad theory, predict how the vaccine will behave in a human body, right? Only by testing can we develop whether there are uh, severe side effects, and these tests have been run. But there is there is also the doubt of, okay, in what were the test persons? What happens to children? What happens to old age pe- people? What happens to uh, people with heart diseases, with, with kidney diseases? You know, there is all these, I, I mentioned this, this, this um, principle of same conditions, same effects, that is also a principle that holds here. We don't know what the conditions are that interfere with the with the vaccine. And, and the only way of, of getting to know that is indeed uh, by uh, discovering, by, by uh, monitoring uh, the, the whole uh, vaccination program and see, uh, very, look very cautiously at, at what symptoms uh, people may uh, develop, where the difficult thing uh, always is, uh, because this is in the past vaccination um, uh, critique, that certain symptoms were attributed to the vaccine, but we we do not even know. There could also be another cause, right? So if we see strains, uh, so you need to to uh, see that at a certain uh, uh, frequent frequency, for instance. So so uh, talking about it as if it is simple, no, it this is. It is very complex and it is a trade-off between, on the one hand, that uh, the effects of getting infections uh, by corona can be severe for individuals, on the one hand, and the risks that people uh, run uh, by taking a vaccine, 
right? To 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 uh, that there may also still be some risks, but it is a trade-off uh, both at the individual level and at the policy level of when. T- and um, it is not here, of course. It is not only the scientists that decide. It is also all these. Um, these uh, what is it? These bodies that admit or, or uh, no, not approve of of a certain faction, right? So it is not a scientist who decides on it. It is also the what is it called? These um, um, these uh, bureaus that admit for uh, when a faction or an other medicine can be used and sold on the markets, and uh, yeah, another aspect of because what we see is this whole anti-fax uh, movement also. And uh, there I think that we see um, also an example of simple reasoning. Um, so uh, an important argument uh, that is, so this is the same as 70, uh, 70 million people who are uh, virologists currently, there are also uh, 70 million experts on what vaccines do. And a very, and a very, uh, a, a very important um, law, in a sense, that they use, they think is kind of, can be kind of extrapolated, is um, the vaccine uh, towards measles. So measles has been, um, uh, the vaccine against measles has been uh, uh, an object of, of uh, lots of controversy. And the point with measles is indeed that uh, a human body uh, develops better immunity towards measles naturally than by the vaccine. But that is maybe not a rare case, but there are many cases where um, this is not the case. But what anti-vaxxers uh, in fear from this, that in the case of measles, the human body does it better, that it is always the case that the human body uh, develops better naturally. And that's not the case. There are many, many viruses like polio, like uh, tetanus, uh, like um, uh, the, the virus that causes, uh, what is it, ovarian cancer. There, the vaccine is better than human nature. Uh, then then the uh, human body can do that. So what you see here in the simple reasoning that people have is that they in fear from one example, uh, a generalization, uh, uh, as if that holds for all vaccines. And I think that on this part, it is very important. So science communication here is very important to inform the public of these kinds of considerations. And it is true that as yet, we do not know what is the case for the corona, uh, the coronavirus. It could be that um, in the end, it appears that, uh, for instance, with children, it is better to do that naturally. But it can also be the case that the the um, uh, that uh, that the vaccine uh, does better. So yeah, again, we see here basically an idea that that the image of science as a total machine or a certain totality should be abandoned in favor of the specificities of uh, what scientists are concerned with and the specific practices and different vaccines that each have very different characteristics. Exactly, exactly, yes, yes. And, and, and I think if you put it that way, 
uh, it is of course important not to scare uh, people off, not to not to say, oh, it is so complex, you shouldn't think about it, right? So as I said, it is fantastic that people think about this, that they do this reasoning. But I think at the same time, it is crucial to give them scaffolds, to give them helps, to give them yeah, ways of, of, of reasoning at a higher level to a better understanding and coming closer to what uh, the scientists are reasoning about. And I, well, to, to put it as a very big uh, claim, I really think that we should uh, rethink our education, our high school education and our uh, academic education of, uh, with the question of how can we prepare people um, for current society to, to engage in a better way uh, 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 in, 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 in these kinds of understanding. Uh, and, and I think it is really of uh, societal importance to, to think about it because uh, currently we see really escalations of, of, of disagreements on the basis of extremely simple, well, now I say, keeps uh, saying not simplistic, but simple reasoning, too simple reasoning. Thank you very much, Mick. I'd like to end with a with a very general last question that you maybe all uh, already have partly answered. Uh, so what I what I would like to to conclude is with is to ask you what would be the most important lessons for future events, let's say climate change or new pandemics, that we can learn from how the current pandemic unfolds. I have now uh, talked about a kind of ideal world, whereas even I don't know whether it works that way. So I have said, well, uh, decisions are uh, taken upon such and such models and modeling, but I don't know whether there are such models, right? So, um, so I think that for future situations, um, the, the building and the, the development of models for such situations should be done and also should be done in a way that these models can be made transparent to non-experts. So it puts a requirement on how models are built and how they can uh, be used as uh, tools for communication and for explanations and, and raising understanding. So that is that I think is 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 very important, and I think philosophy of science in practice can help here of how to do that, but also science communication. And one thing that that has really uh, that that I was really wondering throughout this whole crisis is why are there no scenarios? I mean, there are, there is there was science fiction enough and 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 all kinds of predictions enough that there would be at some point a pandemic. And uh, there are uh, there are intellectuals who have warned for that all the time. So why were we not prepared for that in all kinds of way? Why why did we behave also our governments and the advisory bodies of the governments to saying well this suddenly happened to us? I mean we could have prepared for ten years already uh, by in a scientific uh, way and in in not not on the on the vaccine and not on what this exact virus is but on the models of what to do if and so that would for me be um, yeah, a recommendation where uh, also philosophy science in practice can can play a very important role 
to to think much much earlier about uh, all these aspects that we have learned. So also uh, the role of of the general audience in such crisis, because they are a really a, a real big force in what happens here, um, a, a real big factor also in what happens here. To think about scenarios and to to think through scenarios and to to make models about uh, for that. Uh, that can help people uh, make quicker decisions and and also I call models also uh, often tools for thinking, right? Tools for our reasoning that help us so that we do not have to do that in very confused uh, debates, but really also as help for our thinking. Thank you very much, uh, Mika. I think with that we we come to the end of the this pod, uh, podcast so Mika, I, I really enjoyed this uh, this conversation uh, really appreciate that you took the time to uh, to be here thank you Bas it was very nice doing this and uh, to, to speak out about things that are really close to my heart I'm really glad to hear that so yeah I also want to to thank all listeners for uh, for listening I would also really thank you Bas for uh, for this very nice conversation and uh, thank you for this podcast We would like to thank the 4TU Ethics Consortium for sponsoring this podcast and thank you for your time and your attention. Stay tuned and follow this channel for more episodes. Hear you soon.